You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. As I think about introductions, no doubt you've been in a situation or situations before when you've met people and they've taken out a business card like I hold in my hand and they hand you the business card. And typically when people receive a business card, if anybody even has business cards, a lot of times in a digital world today, we don't have that. We typically pull out our phones and exchange contacts like that. But in a business context, you exchange business cards. It's not uncommon to be like, thank you very much. You kind of acknowledge their information's on there and you put it in your pocket, maybe put it in your wallet, put it somewhere, maybe in a bag or something. You might even take a pen out. You might even grab the back of the card and write some information on it that they're relaying to you, some information they're communicating that you want to remember later, and this is you're going to assign this to this. Well, that might be how you interact with and receive business cards from people here in the United States. But friends, let me just tell you right now this morning, that's very differently than how you exchange business cards in Japan. In Japan, it's a completely different exercise, as Nozomi knows. In Japan, it's a bit of a business ritual, if you will, that you need to recognize that there's a process you have to go through. You need to know the process because if you don't do the process correctly, it can be a great offense and really affect the business relationships. So let me explain to you for when you're traveling to Japan how to prepare. First of all, when you know you're going to be in a meeting with some other people and doing business together, you need to prepare beforehand that you know how many people can be present at the meeting so that every person who is present would be able to receive a business card from you. Secondly, you need to understand that when you exchange business cards, you do so in the order of the highest ranking person in the room with them giving their business card first and descending down from there. Third, when you hand, reach, reach for your business card, you don't reach into your wallet, you don't reach into your back pocket, you don't reach into your jacket, you reach into your business card holder, and you pull out your business card holder, and in your right hand, you extend your business card to them while you bow. And as you extend the business card and while you bow, you introduce yourself. You say something like, it's nice to meet you. My name is Eric Bancroft with Grace Church, and again, it's very nice to meet you. In your left hand, you're holding your business card holder. I hope you're taking notes here. And then, as someone extends a business card to you, and you receive it, you do not take it and put it in your back pocket. You take it and you receive it with two hands. And you look at it. You raise it up, raising it up no higher than the chest height. And you read it out loud, announcing what's printed there. Making sure that you are pronouncing the person's name correctly. It's not rude to ask if you're getting the name wrong, so that you might learn how to get correctly. And then you take the business card and you put it in your business card holder, making sure to put the business cards in the order that you have received them so that you might not get them out of order as to who is at higher ranking in the room. And then after that whole ritual is ended, you can then go into business together. Now, I've just helped you out for when you travel to Japan, you might know how to exchange business cards. Some of you are like, what are even business cards? Today... We're going to look at somebody else's business card. You're holding it in your hand right now. But the person's not from the United States. They're not from Japan. The person's from Israel. They have a business card they want to put in your hand. But unlike 
a business card from United States, they don't want you to put it in your back pocket. They want you to hold it in your hands and look at it with both hands and with your eyes. But unlike in Japan, where they don't want you to write on the business card because that would be disrespectful. No, in this situation today, we want you to feel very comfortable to write on this business card. The business card that I speak of is in Galatians chapter 1. As Paul introduces himself to us this morning under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he writes to the churches in southern Galatia, a number of churches in this region. As you're turning to the Bible in the book of Galatians, let me just tell you, for those of you who are new to Christianity, maybe don't even have a Bible, just want to make you available, make you aware, for example, that we do have at the Welcome Center free Bibles. Love for you to have one of those. You're welcome to look over the shoulder of somebody else or find a Bible app and use it on your phone. We start now this morning a new series in the book of Galatians. It's an important series we're going to be in, an important book for the next 20 plus weeks, going all the way through the middle of July. We're going to be in this book together. And really the book of Galatians is about no other gospel. No other gospel, Paul wants to make clear. For these Christians in these churches in the region of Galatia, this area here in the kind of Macedonian area, this sort of Mediterranean area as we know of it today, he wants these churches to be clear because already within a short amount of time, they're beginning to wander. As they begin to wonder, is what Paul taught correct? Or has he left something out? Do we need to add to what Paul has kept from us? And so we're going to look for the next several months together through the book of Galatians. And as we look at this, we look at this business card in our hand, let's read it together because that's exactly how it begins. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we look at these first five verses for our time together this morning, we see very briefly, but very importantly, Paul wants us to see three things. First of all, God's man. Second of all, God's people. And third of all, God's plan. God's man, God's people, God's plan. And we can just see them there in the text. First of all, God's man. It starts off very clearly, Paul. Now, just to kind of give you a sense of contextual understanding, Paul is writing a letter. Now, it's not common today if you write someone a letter that you begin with the person who's writing, but it's to begin with the person that you're writing to. So our son, David, was just recently in boot camp in the Air Force, and he could not get any phone calls. He could not have any kind of FaceTime interaction. There was no text messages. It was simply a series of letter writing back and forth and back and forth. And you know when you write letters today, you often address the person, dear so-and-so. Could be their name, could be a nickname you have for them, could be some affectionate name to you, dear my beloved wife, dear David. But in the New East, in the Middle Eastern time, in the first century context, the way that letters would be written would it would start with the person who is writing to the people they're writing with some type of general greeting. Paul, keeping with that culture, and yet 
adds so much more under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we need not to miss today. Now, interesting for Paul, you have to understand, Paul has been a Christian for about 14 years at this point. If you go back earlier in Paul's life, he was not known as Paul, he was known as Saul. That was his name. And he was Jewish, and he was a zealot. Not only was he a zealot Jewish person, but he was in a zeal committed to eradicate Christianity. This seemingly new teaching, as it was described by many Jewish people, teaching that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah. And Saul had committed his time to helping uh, identify and capture and kill Christians. This was his testimony. You might feel like you have done things before the Lord that there's no way God could accept you. The things that you have done that you would never speak of here in this room. I can just assure you, if you think that way, friend, you are in good company in Christianity. The leaders of the New Testament church would seemingly be piled under a pile of shame and guilt of what they have done before they were Christians, never believing God could ever love them. That's exactly what God has done. God has called someone like Saul, who is later renamed Paul, to a ministry of representation as an ambassador. Paul, prior to writing the book of Galatians here, having been converted 14 years earlier, first spent a few years preaching in Arabia and Damascus. He went to Jerusalem for a a little bit of time, and then he came back to Jerusalem after 14 years, and then he's sent out by, uh, by the Jerusalem council with Barnabas, and he plants churches. Now, it's only a year before the writing of this letter and Paul's first missionary journey, he's planted churches in his areas. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Grace Church, this church, is four years old. I feel like we've just gotten started. And the last thing I want to do is leave you because I'm thinking, we're not ready for that. Paul was planting churches and was there, could be there eight months, could be there 12 months, could be there 18 months, sometimes up to two years, and then he'd move on. He kept planting churches, planting churches, and raise up leaders within them, and he'd plant more churches and keep going and going and going. And that's what he would do. So Paul, having planted these churches in Galatia, is now writing back to them. He identifies himself as Paul, but look at what he says here. Immediately afterwards, he says, Paul, an apostle. Paul's apostleship is one of the most important themes in the entire book of Galatians. And look at what he says by description. He says, not from men, nor through man, describing why he's an apostle. Now, why is this so significant? It's significant because it already begins to give us an indication. Paul's up against some opposition. He's up against a smear campaign against him that's taken hold in this young church as he was their founding pastor that now he's being slandered and misrepresented. This idea of being not from men is contrasting the false teachers who are called by themselves. This idea that nor was it through man means that Paul was saying he was called directly by Jesus Christ himself. Do you realize how unique of a statement that is? Only the disciples, eyewitnesses of Christ, only Paul could claim that everybody thereafter was called by God, but affirmed and identified by calling by men before them. Timothy, Titus, 
called by Paul as the Lord used them. But in this situation, Paul is saying so significantly, he is an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ. There was no other time in any of Paul's writings that he comes out this strong with this kind of identification. Now, to be clear, this is not some insecure apostle who's got a low view of himself and he's trying to puff himself up so that you can respect him. That's not at all what Paul's motivated by here. Paul is establishing very clearly and very historically the significance of his role and therefore his responsibility. You think of a business card. What does a business card have? It typically has three things on it. The person's name, the person's title, and what company they work for that has given them that title, that responsibility. That's what Paul is doing here with his business card. He is giving his name, he's giving his title, and he's representing who he works for. Go back to verse 1, what it says there. He is an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is establishing the credibility here. These false teachers that had come in since Paul had left earlier would have appeared to have all the credentials. Men of great respect, intelligent and well-spoken. Jewish people with great historical stock, if you will, genealogically speaking, knowing their Bibles, able to present to those who are ignorant and seemingly those who are educated the quote-unquote truth sent by themselves, commissioned by their own desires, Fooling others into thinking that faith is good, but it's never to be detached from the law, particularly circumcision. And if you're going to be a follower of God, you must be circumcised. This is an issue that comes out in the coming chapters. Paul pulls out his business card and shows the Galatians his title, who he works for. He is an apostle. Now, this term is an interesting one, particularly for us here in Miami. It's not uncommon today to have people around the world self-identify as apostles. Particularly here in Miami, some of you have even come from churches whose pastors maybe refer to themselves as apostles. But let's, let's kind of stop for a second and make sure we understand what the Bible describes as an apostle so we can use a biblical explanation and evaluation of whether or not that's true for today. The word apostle means one who is sent out. The primary usage in the New Testament is this office of an apostle, somebody who is sent out, specifically the disciples of Jesus, plus Paul later when Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. They were the first messengers of the gospel after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was these apostles who were the foundation of the church. Keeping your finger in Galatians, literally just turn a page or two to the right in your Bibles. You come to the book of Ephesians. Look at what Ephesians says here. Ephesians chapter 2. Give us a running start. Look at verse 19. Paul tells the Ephesian church in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Again, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jump ahead to chapter 4 of Ephesians. Talking about the gifts that Christ gave 
as it refers to this, this measure of Christ's gift in verse 7 and following of chapter 4. Look at what he says in verse 11. He, referring to Christ, giving these gifts to men, back in verse 8, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints of the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. The specific type of apostle that is being spoken of in the New Testament is a unique historical role in the life of the church. The specific type of apostle is not present in the church today. Just consider the qualifications of an apostle as biblically defined. Number one, to have been a witness of the resurrected Christ. We see this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Number two, to have been explicitly chosen by the Holy Spirit. We see this in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. And then also, number three, to have the ability to perform signs and wonders. We see this in Acts 2, 43. But just listen as I read to you 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, where it says in that, in that verse, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The responsibility of the apostles was laying the foundation of the church, which would argue for their uniqueness. 2,000 years later, friends, we're not laying that foundation. We're building on that foundation, Christ being the cornerstone. Why do I highlight this and pull the car over in this conversation and make sure we're all on the same page together? Because it's not uncommon today for people to claim the position of apostle. This is a dangerous and biblically false thing to do. Often those claiming the office of an apostle do so with authority they want to claim equal to those in the original apostles. There's no biblical evidence to support this. We should remember the New Testament warning against false apostles. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. Verses 13 and 15, through 15, it says this. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. For no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. For their end, or their end rather, will correspond to their deeds. This is why this is significant for Paul to make this clarification, and we understand it today. Looking back at the text in verse 1, talking about the man, Paul, an apostle, through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Notice how significant it is that Paul connects his calling and ministry even to the resurrection of Christ. Do you know that it's a temptation for some denominations today? to actually teach that the resurrection of Jesus is actually and was not a historical physical resurrection, that Jesus did not physically resurrect from the grave, but that he spiritually came alive in our hearts. And his example to us today is to just simply be an example to us as a spiritual example, an ethical model, a religious reformer, a lover of people, a caring for the outcast, but not actually believing that Jesus physically rose from the grave and appeared to witnesses as I see you and so you see me today? Friends, to deny the resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is to deny the gospel. So calmly, so frequently, Paul ties so much of the heart 
the heartbeat of Christianity to the resurrection of Christ. The significance of that, even now as he refers to his apostleship, this divine reality of his apostleship through Jesus Christ, that's the one who commissioned him and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Think about this, the significance of this, what it means that Paul has this divine appointment and divine commission. What he proclaims is true and authoritative. Last July, you maybe heard it in the news, maybe you did not. The king of Bahrain dismissed my bint Muhammad al-Khalifa from her post as chief of the Bahrain Authority for Culture and Antiquities. Several years ago in 2014, Forbes Middle East named her the sixth most powerful woman in the Arab world. She is a member of the royal family and has served the kingdom of Bahrain for 20 years. The question is, what did she do to be removed from her office by the king with one phone call? What did she do that the king of the country would say, you're done? She was attending the funeral of the father of the U.S. ambassador to Bahrain. And other political national dignitaries were present, including the Israeli ambassador who was present. And she left the event refusing to even shake his hand in protest of the Israeli ambassador being there. Lily just would not even extend her hand to greet him, this Israeli ambassador. Two days later, she was dismissed from office. Does that seem odd? You lose your job over not having a handshake? Seems a bit intense. But why did this happen even today? Why would this be such a major deal? Because her position as a representative brought shame upon the king's throne in Bahrain. This representative, by a single act, had brought disdain to the king. And he could have nothing to do with it, and he had to distance himself from it. What do we see here? We see that in this example of representation, it's not the person themselves that they represent. It's actually themselves greater than who they are. Paul is saying that. Paul's like, I'm not here to represent myself. Paul knows, as we'll see later in Philippians or Galatians, he knows who he is and who he's not. But he knows who Christ is. Paul is not self-promoting. He is being Christ-promoting. When Jesus resurrected from the grave, all questions were answered. All authority is the Lord's. And he gives that in this context to Paul, and he wants the Galatians to know that. It takes us secondly to God's people. Not only God's man, but God's people. And this is a briefer point, but I don't want us to miss it because it kind of comes in two different ways. The very end of verse two, or rather the beginning of verse two, it says, and all their brothers who are with me. So I'm saying that differently. Paul and all the brothers who are with him are writing to the churches of Galatia. So both the brothers who are with Paul and all the churches in Galatia, what I want you to recognize is that Paul is like, though he is an apostle, he is not alone. 
What he is about to say is not unique to him. This is common to Orthodox Christianity. And it's also interesting to note here, he's not concerned for a Christian. He's not just concerned for one group of Christians in one church. He's concerned for many of them. Hence why he's writing to the churches of Galatia. This problem had spread. The church in Pisidia and Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. These churches that he planted on his first missionary journey, he writes to them. God's people are always to be seen in community together. You just have to kind of Capture that moment by reflection, if you would, yourself. Do you realize how tempting it is for any one of us to say, well, I've got God. I'm good. I've got the Savior. I'm fine. And anything beyond that, well, that's just kind of an elective choice I might want. Maybe some music here. Maybe some preaching there. Maybe some friends there. After all, I largely have the Internet today to kind of be my church. Pick this preaching here, this music there, these devotional teachings here, this radio station there. Friend, that vision of the Christian life is completely foreign to the New Testament. That does not mean you should not listen to those things or have friends in other places. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is there's always a correlation that to have God as your father, as Augustine would say, is to have the church as your mother. And the idea is that we are always in community together with one another. One of the most common fallacies that Christians can sometimes think themselves is that Christianity is very private. Very private. And after all, we talk about things like asking the Lord and Savior into your heart. And things like this, the way we kind of describe it. Friends, let me, if I can, just make a small but I think important correction to what is a well-intended but I think misguided statement. Christianity is never private. Christianity is always personal but it's also always very public. Paul, an apostle from Jesus Christ, even in his ministry to these churches, says, hey, I'm not alone. All the other brothers are with me. Greet you. And he wanted them to know that they're not alone. And he's not just identifying, hey, the troubled people in the group. He's talking to all the churches. They all need to hear this together. So calmly, the temptation for us in the West is to sort of remove our Christianity from the communal aspect of it, but instead to be in community together where we are known and loved. There are some of you who are here this morning who have been living out in the storm of this world. Friends, if you have no place to call home, come to Grace Church. Make Grace Church your home where you can be known where you can be clear in the gospel. You can be pastored and shepherded and prayed for. Be in community, share in hospitality, serve one another, pray for one another in the context of community as Paul knew, as the Galatians knew, as John knew, as James knew, as even Jesus himself practiced with his disciples. As he gathered them together to even pray for him, he would say. It takes us third to God's plan kind of the heart of this text this morning. Not just God's man, not just God's people, but God's plan. What is God's plan? Well, look at it with me, if you would, in verse 3. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. 
Simple words, profound in their meaning and implication. Do you realize how significant it is for someone like you or like me to realize how much we need grace? It happens all the time. We're late to work, coming into a meeting late. What do we want from our boss? Hey, some grace. We're driving down the road too fast. Maybe don't make a complete stop at intersection. We get pulled over by a police officer. What do we want? We want some grace. We send somebody a text. They misread the tone of it. They take offense by it. What do we want from them? Some grace. What are we asking for? On a daily reality, whether we state it or we simply just imply needing it, we recognize we need grace. But friends, the place that we need grace is not from each other. The place that we need grace is from God. Because if all we get from God is sometimes all we pray for from God is justice, no one here can stand. No one here will be able to be declared okay with God. We need God's loyal love that is undeserved. And here's the thing about grace that's so radical. The more ineligible you believe you are to receive it, the more qualified you are. Well, just think about that with me for a second. There are some people here who think, you don't know. I'm like the small print on God's good news. I'm the small print on God's love. If you knew what I know about me, you would know there's small print. God doesn't mean to offer it to me. I mean to say, oh, you're all the more qualified. I mean, this is what Jesus said in his ministry. He, he came to be with sinners. Only the sick know that they need a physician. Friends, the reality of grace is that it is available in Christ. That's exactly what he's saying here. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see the correlation here. After grace is given, what follows? Peace. Peace, if you will, is like the aftermath. If grace is the entree. Peace is the dessert. It's what you enjoy. And you receive it gladly, appreciating it. Even as we sang earlier, when the winds blow, when the storms crash, there can be peace. It seems like we're confusing at best and maybe actually like nonsensical at worst. We've lost our mind because our peace is not in our circumstances, not in our health, not even in our human relationships. Our peace is from God. It comes in the aftermath of such grace. As he says this here, as he extends this plan, what is it that God is giving to his people? As Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is packed with Trinitarian implications here. Now look at what it says there. What did Jesus do? Again, we're back to this. So we got the resurrection in verse 1. We got the crucifixion in verse 2, excuse me, in verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins. By the way, don't miss the plurality. God, our Father, for our sins, to deliver us. You're going to have a really hard time trying to read the Bible privately. 
personally, as if it's just simply like a you and God thing. I'm talking about so regularly, so frequently, it is in the context of the plurality of community in which he communicates the salvation, which is why the people of God so much love singing together and being together and serving one another because we all have a shared testimony, not just of being in sin before, but being now in Christ and forgiven. Our God, our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Oh, friends, this is huge. Think of the implications of this. Our sins. What are the implications? Our sin has consequences. And it needs to be addressed. Man's greatest problem is not a lack of technology that's not yet been developed. Man's greatest problem is not just a lack of love for each other and if we could just be kinder, we'd be okay. Man's greatest problem is not a lack of education. If we could just eradicate illiteracy or provide sanitation, we'd be okay. Friends, this is why it's so significant that the church does not lose its mission and its attempt to do good works to the world at large and its neighbor in proximity. All of which is good. But too often, if we're not careful, churches can be doing all the good works that other organizations can do, but be neglecting the message that only we have been called to give, the good news of Jesus Christ. Problem that we have that needs to be addressed is our sins. Our sins is what separates us from God. Our sins is what is displaying the reality of our inner desire, which is to rebel against him and authority over us. But Christ came to give himself. Which is a second implication for both those of you who are non-Christians and those of you who are Christians. For those of you who are non-Christians, here's a simple question you have to ask yourself by way of reflection. Who dies for your sins? Who dies for your sins? Like, I don't think anybody should die, but that just means you understand how the significance of rebelling against God. Who dies for your sins? We, we have a sense of justice, right? Like if murder happens, these kind of things take place, we have a sense of we want justice. But here's the question. How is justice found with your sins? Here's basically how the Bible lays this out. Everybody has somebody to die for their sins. Either themselves or their substitute themselves dying for their sins for an eternity in hell, rightly being judged by God for rebelling against him, or their substitute, which only one is qualified, Jesus Christ, God's son, who came and lived like every one of us except perfect. He was born as a human, born from a virgin, fulfilled God's law, then died as a substitute for all those who would ever believe in him, would be forgiven of their sins and then resurrected from the grave physically, Paul says it, Galatians 1, it's finished. For those who are in Christ, friends, this is where you love to camp out. Jesus delivered you. He died for your sins. And the significance here is how this affects us, even as it says there, it delivers us from the evil of the present age or the present evil age, this idea that we're living now in a different reality Though this world is passing away and the things in it 
what is to come, the fullness of life in Christ that will come to pass, we already have a taste of that now as new creations in Christ, now as a part of the redeemed people of God, saved from this passing world. And then look at what it says there, as if it just couldn't get, it's just so dense, it's got so much going on, according to the will of our God and Father. Just to be clear, sometimes people represent God as if God the Father's in the Old Testament, like some angry ogre being mean. And then Jesus the Son shows up in the New Testament, it's like, whoa, 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 hold on, Father, let's be nice. That's, that, 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 that is a blasphemous way to think of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Completely inaccurate. Christ is laying down his life according to the will of God the Father. Christians, let me just say this as a point of meditation and reflection and encouragement. If you ever doubt God's love for you, because circumstantially things are not going the way you think that they should if God did love you. Do not look to your circumstances. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. See the will of the Father to crucify his Son for you. For you. He would love you that much. That doesn't make all the circumstances easy, but it certainly gives you a perspective greater than and longer than the circumstance you're in the middle of. See the significance of the will of the Father to crucify His Son so that you would receive grace and peace. Is it any wonder why it ends the way it does in verse 5? To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What's going on here? Paul basically just busts into a worship service. I mean, you got to understand this, friends. Theology, theology should lead to doxology. A understanding of who God is should lead to a praise and worshiping of who God is, what he has done. Friends, if you know the Bible well, or so you think, but it's not seen in your life by your desire to praise God and live for him, there's a disconnect. There's a, we need to get like a spiritual electrician in your life and go, we got it, something's wrong here. The wires are not connecting well. I'm not talking temperamentally like you all gonna become like extroverts running around getting crazy. I'm, no, I, you can respect it. You can be low key. I respect that. But in your heart, in your heart, do you have that kind of reaction Paul's talking about here where he says, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Come on now, if someone's listening. I mean, this is why we enjoyed so much Friday night together when so many of us were gathered together, a couple of the churches here in this room, praising God, worshiping the Lord. It's because we just want an extended time to sing in response. I mean, think about it. Where else are you going to go where you're going to sing like that? No other place. You can't find it. A bunch of people, different ethnicities, different age groups, different economics, different educational backgrounds, all together singing. Some like quietly, like, you know, I'm feeling this one. Some are like throwing touchdowns for Jesus, like I am. Like, let's go. Different affections, but they all love the Lord because they, Paul, Paul can't even get out of his introduction to the Galatians and find himself in a worship service. Friends, what encouragement this should be to you and to me as we see 
God's man, God's people, God's plan. My wife, Danelle, the queen, sitting here on the front. She's gotten into plants lately. And when I say got into plants, she's really into them. Some of you are feeding this addiction. I'm concerned. You know who you are. It's gotten to the point where she's like, we're going on bike rides to scope out other people's landscaping. And the ones that she likes, she asks them, hey, she knocks on the door. She's in steel, just be clear. She says, hey, can I take some clippings? She comes home. She plants more. So right now, I feel like I have a greenhouse on my house. Which honestly, it's nice. Wife's like, see, you think it's nice. But you know what comes with all those plants? Bugs. Straight up, bugs. And then you gotta start worried about those plants. You gotta be worried about like humidity and temperature. We've got this one plant, my wife just told me, oh, this plant's doing really well. I was like, why? Because it's in our bathroom where it's really humid from the shower. It's doing great. I'm like, well, I don't want to put all of them in here. I say this because in that context, you can understand something that can be so good and beautiful. With that can come challenges. Paul has planted the seeds of the gospel in these different towns in Galatia. It's bearing fruit. People are getting saved. Lives are being transformed. What's also happening in those churches is that the bugs are coming. The different variables are affecting those churches. And Paul, as a faithful shepherd, is coming back and writing to them and saying, I need to help remove these things. And I'm concerned. This is growing. This is happening. This is happening. And you're letting people in here and they're, they're making a mess of it. As we're about to see next week, he turns it up a notch like you've never seen Paul do before on how concerned he is that they get the gospel wrong. Because it's not just, well, he meant well. These people are condemning people to hell with their bad teaching. So Paul is being a faithful shepherd. Why? Because he wants the churches of Galatia to be God-centered, God-focused rather, Christ-centered, and spirit-filled. We want the Church of Grace Church and the faith church we're planting to be the same thing. God-focused, Christ-centered, and spirit-filled. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.